Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss. So I just got back from the annual meeting of the AAAS in Washington, D.C. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And it got me super re-energized for working on our podcast here. The conference was full of scientists, science communicators, journalists, students, policy people, authors, publishers, and even a family science day for the general public. So many people all excited to talk about science and how people communicate about it and implications for society. It was amazing, and I know it's been kind of a long break since our last episode of Sustainable Nano, but I'm going to try to get us back on a regular every-other-week schedule for the rest of the season. So for this episode, which is our 30th, if you can believe it, we have an interview for you with Dr. Klaus Mullen, who is an emeritus director at the Max Planck Institute for Polymer Research. He visited the University of Minnesota to give a seminar last fall and agreed to sit down for an interview with a couple of our graduate students from the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, Stephanie Mitchell and Andrew Northwick. Dr. Mullen's research spans a whole range of chemistry and physics at the nanoscale, including graphenes, biosynthetic hybrids, and nanocomposites. That's composites, meaning two or more materials combined into one, where the materials are nano, of course. So you'll hear lots more about that in the interview, along with a range of other nano-related topics, including antibiotics, microplastics, energy storage, and even how running a lab is like coaching soccer. So without further ado, here's our interview. Hello everyone, my name is Stephanie Mitchell. I am a graduate student in Aaron Carlson's lab at the University of Minnesota, and I am with... I'm Andrew Northwick. I'm also a graduate student here at the University of Minnesota in Aaron Carlson's lab. Uh, We're very excited here to be with Professor Klaus Mullen from the Max Planck Institute for Polymer Research. Um, So if you wouldn't mind sitting down just telling us a little bit more about yourself and your work. Well... For many years, I have been serving as director of the of Max Planck Institute, who's dealing with polymers. And you know, polymers can be biopolymers, can be synthetic polymers. So you go for biological function, you go for synthetic function. That function can be mechanic, that function can get electronic. So you have a huge manifold of structures and associated functional opportunities. And, yeah, it has been fun. Uh, But, of course, um, research never comes to an end. I have been accepting some other positions uh, while I'm no longer director because I like research. And even my family likes it and lets me do do it. (laughs) So can you tell us how you discovered your interest in chemistry? Uh, I thought about that. And yeah, there is a simple answer. I like colors, either from from the flowers or from art. And I think uh, the ability of a chemist to make colorants is so remarkable. Uh, also, making colorants, or you could say dyes, cheaply has been a key element of the Industrial Revolution. To make that and the synth- rather than extract that from plants or, or snails or whatever, and, and controlling color, making them stable, putting onto fabric. Um, yeah, I think my entry point into chemistry was color. And then, many years back, one learns that colorants are not only producing color but also our components in electronic devices, for example, semiconductors or sensors. 
That's an excellent point. It always thrills me when I'm doing something in lab and it just happens to be colorful because it's not the usual colors, something stunning that I don't get to see very often when I work with bacteria. Yeah. Only special bacteria yeah. get to make the yeah. beautiful colors. And let's say th this question, when does an organic compound have the ability to interact with the, say, with the light? Mm -hmm. or selective absorption, polarizable electrons. So there is the visual impression, but there is a lot of physics and photophysics behind it. Absolutely. So in our Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, we think a lot about metal and metal oxide nanoparticles and their role in technology and even the luminescent and colorful properties of carbon quantum dots. So how do you harness the power of nanoparticles for applications in your research? Well, let us follow a little bit the meaning of nanocomposites. In a composite you mix more than one component and what you're trying to do is to get the best out of two worlds. Say when we have a nanocomposite of organic and inorganic origin, we have many questions to solve. And I think the easiest case by which I can make that clear is charge storage in a battery. When you look at the specific capacity of a material, and you know, people have been using graphite as anode in batteries for lithium storage, it's disappointingly low. And inorganic materials have a much higher capacity. But now you can readily understand there is the, the, the lithium ions enters the network and at the end they go out and you have huge morphological changes. And as a result, that material is never stable. It will end up at the bottom of your cell. Now imagine you take now the organic component, let's say a disk structure, or you take graphene and you wrap it up like a piece of candy in a sheet of paper. Of course, it must be uh, permeable for the, for the lithium ions. Now you have the high uh, storage capacity of the inorganic material, but you superimpose on that the morphological stability. This is the best out of two worlds. And while we have been talking about dyes, it's not very trivial to dye a fabric. And there is a famous problem, let's say you have a polyolefin, you put a dye into that, an organic chromophore, a weight a day, and it comes out of that surface. It doesn't want to stay in there. In other words, how will you make that compatible? Or you have a polymer and you like to achieve mechanical stabilization. You must decorate the inorganic material such that it is more happy with the environment with a polymer. So you can do that by amphiphiles, you can use block copolymers, but it's the issue of the compatibility. And this is the idea of a composite, that you combine features which a single component will not offer you. So. It's easy to explain this idea of composite. Of course, material-wise, we would call it a hybrid of inorganic, organic origin. But there are so many opportunities. Say, um, we, we are all afraid of uh, too bright sunlight or the UV radiation. So industry made PMMA films, transparent, of course. You like to make it UV-absorbing. You put zinc oxide particles into that. But they will not be happy and they will aggregate. What is the result? Your film will turn turbid. 
So you need to encapsulate that by whatever means you use to keep them apart, to make them morphologically stable. And this is again taking the best of two different worlds. Well, your research with nanocomposites isn't just involving these bioorganic molecules and graphene, but you're also looking at two different types of graphene themselves and how changing the structure or the shape or the size affects electronic properties of the native graphene itself. Would you mind explaining a little bit about that as well? Mm -hmm. Graphene is, of course, uh, looked at as a wonder material. It has some very interesting physical properties. First of all, it's transparent as a monolayer. It has a very strange quantum hole effect. It has a high charge carrier mobility. It has a high mechanical stability. But let us select this issue of high mobility of charges. This is a property which is really needed in um, electronic devices like field effect transistors. And even if one doesn't know much about field effect transistors, he or she should know two things. First of all, our uh, circuitry consists of thousands of field effect transistors. And what is a very important property is that you can switch rapidly. And for that, you need high mobility. So take graphene, beautiful. The problem, however, is that in this device, you also want an on-off behavior. That is to say, sometimes current should flow and sometimes not, like in a switch. Unfortunately, graphene has one property electronically. When you look at the electronic state diagram, that the energy difference between occupied and unoccupied states, what is so the so-called band gap, is vanishing. And then in your switch, in your device, current would always flow. What a disaster. What would you do with such a switch? <laughs> and this is why, and theory tells you that, make a geometric confinement, make a cut out of that 2D layer, and a graphene nanoribbon would do that. That is theoretically predicted. And then, of course, immediately comes the question how you make that. And material science does use harsh methods like unzipping carbon nanotubes or doing complex lithography. And I am not in favor of that because you have no structure control. And the beauty of synthesis is that you have precision, that you can also define not only the length of the ribbon, the width of the ribbon, but also the nature of the edges. So with that, you can really Again, take the best of two worlds. High mobility, we know from graphene, but also an on-off behavior and practical electronics. It's really interesting to hear you talk about graphene in this way, because the way we tend to think about nanoparticles is the reason they act differently than bulk is because they're so small. So, for example, gold looks gold when it's on a yes. macro scale, but we yes. make it small and yes. it changes its color. Yes. But you think about it the opposite way, where maybe you have one ring of benzene and that behaves one way, but the moment you make it bigger, it has different properties. Of so we course. think on completely different size scales. Which I think, I think is it is not so different. I think we, we just need to ask ourselves what happens if we go along length scales. You have a small molecule and this is what you describe in terms of molecular orbital theory. Now you go to a packing of these small molecules, and for example, you look at how 
electrons hop from mo molecule to molecule. But you could also envisage that you have a delocalization of the orbitals to form electronic bands. And then again the electronic situation is changed and the same happens now if we look at a bulk material or if we now look at a geometric confinement of a metal oxide which again changes the electronic situation. But there is no difference in that. We just must look at how the energy and the corresponding wave functions develop as a function of the interaction and as a result of the geometric confinement. Yeah? Think of the electron in the box and then you have defined electronic states. Yeah? So it's not so different. It's just yeah? a different lens that you look at it. There yeah, is a common principle. Mm -hmm. So speaking of different ways to think about it, we are the center for sustainable nanotechnology, and we're trying to look at taking current nanomaterials and finding greener ways to either make them or use them. Can you talk about how your work is relating to nanotechnology and trying to make it either greener or more sustainable or just a different way of thinking about it? Well, the word nanotechnology, just like, for example, the term biotechnology, is only softly defined and, and different people have different understandings there. I just like to make a final and additional remark regarding the nanoparticles. Um, when you do surgery and you implant, say, an artificial hip, and believe me, I have a strong relation to that because I had it done three times. Um, <laughs> the infections is a big problem, so people put in antibiotics, but they survive only for a short time. So a technology which we have involved in was to make silver nanoparticles small enough because they have an antibacterial effect. And by the way, it must be small enough, otherwise it's not antibacterial. But of course, it needs also to be compatibilized. So we are back at the original question. Now you asked me for the issue of sustainability. Sustainability, I believe, is again somewhat softly defined. It can have so many implications. Let me give you an example that, say, uh, you look at... BASF or 3M or Dow, how much CO2 do they produce? Well, they burn a lot of organic solvent and they have often a problem with contaminated water mm -hmm. out of there. So reducing the amount of solvent in chemical production, terribly important aspect. And now let me make a big jump. And you, you have heard when we talk about plastics, and I am a polymer person, uh, when you talk about plastics, we immediately have, say, maritime littering in mind. The fact is, however, that if you transport yogurt in glass, 70% of the weight is just a container. When you put it in a plastic container, the weight of your packaging is, is much lower. So... I, I think just a word of warning may be appropriate that um, we must be careful, say, if we look at plastic. And of course, there is a senseless use of plastics. But plastics, and my hip, I told you, is a mm -hmm. high molecular weight polyethylene. 
And would you exclude that from my body or take other aspects? Uh, microplastic, you know, where a lot of microplastic comes from the abrasion from our shoe sole when we walk. That makes tons of microplastic. So I think we should be very careful and we should go down to the bottom where pollution comes from. And we should be careful to see, and this is why I mentioned the silver particle as antibacterial agent, we should be very careful in defining the pros and cons. And I can take now a, a technical aspect. For example, we are now desperate, not only as part of electromobility, to get them light weight materials, but mechanically strong. Then we can are back at composite. So we load the carbon nanofiber into a polymer matrix. Now, if you say, that doesn't convince me, just the issue of wave. But when you harvest wind energy, of course, the larger the wing is, the, the more energy is harvested. But you cannot construct that from steel. And you, want, you need carbon nanofiber enforced polymers. The only way to do that. And when you talk about biodegradability, I mean, the technical and scientific issues for biodegradation are all solved. We have given that to society. The question is the societal or political decision. Would it be a little bit more expensive to, say, use feedstock or not? This is what we need to decide. It's not so much, it's more a legal and societal problem than a technical problem. Yeah, and that also holds for composites. Say, if you uh, reinforce with an inogenic particle, say a polyamide, um, uh, you can make it biodegradable. That's easy, that's routine. And of course, you end up with some sand from the enforcement. That is absolutely no problem. But let us make a big jump to, say, um, complex biomedicine. Think of DNA transfection that finally you would want uh, gene therapy. That means you must convince a DNA to go into a cell. It doesn't do that because it's a polyelectrolyte. Why would that go through a, a lipophilic uh, membrane? So you need a vehicle, you need a carrier. You can use a cationic polymer, but they are often toxic. Or you can use a virus, which also have problems. Now, as far as I know, but I'm not really the expert, Adenoviruses are in clinical testing, but mm -hmm. it is known that they do not go into stem cells and into cancer cells, which has to do with the receptor on the surface, the so-called CAR receptor. What do you do? Well, do a chemistry and make a hybrid. Um, we have made these dendromers which have a certain decoration with polar and unpolar groups. I will not explain in greater detail, but they cause an aggregation of that virus and then it is taken up. And there are other aspects. Let's say if you put a particle into a system, you never know what happens. But let's say, for example, the interaction between say, um, a particle which you have added, and for example, the, the blood coagulation factor. 
that's a big complication. And these dendrums, which I just mentioned, protect that particle against the blood coagulation factor. And let us not forget, we do a lot of cell uptake experiments, but we must also think about not only the endocytosis, also the exocytosis. Do you get it out and where does it end up? And such virus complexes often have interaction with hepatocytes and everything is accumulated in the liver. That's something you need to block. But we are always dealing with hybrid, with combination of different particles. So chemistry is unbelievable. And um, let's say there is all this fuss around uh, gene therapy. Um, There is much discussion of, uh, say, hydrogen-based energy technologies. The question of how do we store huge amounts. I understood you guys in the US are not so much concerned as we are about um, wind or solar energy. But... um, uh, such technology needs energy storage. Mm-hmm. And yeah, don't absolutely. even believe you could put that in batteries. So the storage is in ele- energy-rich gases. But this is catalysis. But that raises the question, where do we get the hydrogen from? Yeah. So I think photocatalytic water cleavage. We are still hydrolyzing water like we did 150 years ago. So there are photocatalysis and thus the nanoparticles properly decorated are of utmost importance for that. Yeah, Yeah, you've hit on a lot of things from the responsibility of chemists to share with the community even if it doesn't get digested very well to the power we have to manipulate biology and molecules and even following things through the end of life, which is something really important to sustainability, even within the human body, knowing what you give to a human, where that ends up in a human. Do you have any advice for young scientists? Oh, many, more than one. Yeah, Uh, pick your favorite uh, (laughs) then. First of all, I think you must develop your own judgment. If there is a world-renowned professor coming and gives a talk, Tell it everybody. Develop your judgment because you are talking to your supervisor and you tell him, I did that five times, but I think we should stop it. He must rely on you. If, however, you tell him it didn't work, but I think I know what I can change, he must depend on you and you must develop your judgment. An experiment need to be judged. A person need to be judged. Develop your judgment. That is my first idea and my second idea when I say develop your judgment. Trust your own ideas. I mean, if you only walk in other people's footsteps, you will never do anything new. Get away from what the crowd does. And then we like to end with one fun question. So what would your dream job be outside of the chemistry field? Well, I have been uh, playing soccer all my life with a group. I have played in a club. And so these days when we would play soccer in the group, this was just so relaxing and work your soul out. Um, That ended when the hip surgeries started. But I could have well taken another career because I claim I can read a match. I see what regarding tactics is going well and going wrong. And two of my sons are active in soccer. 
So I believe I could have become a quite good soccer coach. Um, probably made more money than... Uh, <laughs> um, that would have been an alternative. Well, now you coach a team of scientists, I guess. Yeah, there are many things in common because, um, let's say, a group does not consist of a flock of hungry wolves. They need to interact. And, you know, I have always been blessed by also having collaboration partners. Um, science is too complicated to solve everything uh, in one group. You need to interact and you need to, to use other competences. So that is really what we can learn from sports. And, yeah, you need a certain, is this the right word, endurance? Yeah. Don't trust just the first try, you know, and uh, go again are willing to interact with others. If I say trust your judgment, that doesn't mean that you, you do everything on your own. You know? Excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking uh, with oh, us today. Oh, it was my delight. I think right. Oof, we are yeah, we're here Alright, thank you everyone. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Professor Merlin for talking with us and to Stephanie Mitchell and Andrew Northwick for conducting the interview. Our music for this episode is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. Thank you to the National Science Foundation for funding the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Our usual disclaimer, as always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or listen to any of our episodes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog, mostly written by students from the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. A couple recent posts there include one about long-distance running in grad school, and another about what the taste difference between M&Ms and mini M&Ms can teach us about nanotechnology. You can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at sustainablenano, all one word, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Sustainable Nano, and remember, it's a small world after all. <laughs>